Welcome all of you again to our study of the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We are in chapter 3. We're going to, Lord willing, uh, complete chapter 3 tonight. And uh, that means we'll have one more chapter left to go through as we complete our study through this wonderful epistle. So, as we always do, let's begin with prayer. Father, we are so grateful that we have the privilege and the, the treasure of your word in our own hands and that you have preserved it for us. We're so blessed, Lord. We know that your word is a light to our feet, a lamp unto our path, and that we know you in a way that we could never have known you apart from your word and from your revelation of yourself to us in Yeshua, our Messiah. Through the work of your Ruach, your spirit, we are able to think your thoughts after you, and we're so grateful for that. We thank you also for this epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We know that it is the inspired word of God, and we take it to heart as we study it. And I pray, Lord, that we would not only seek to find its meaning, but by your grace and mercy, it would be applied to our lives as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah Yeshua. So, Lord, I thank you for each one who has joined us and those that might be listening afterwards. Uh, Lord, we just pray that your word would have its due effect in all of our lives as we submit to you, and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. We're going to read the the entire chapter, chapter 3 of Philippians. Tonight we're reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law or Torah, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the Torah, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Messiah, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the Torah, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. But I press on, so that I may lay hold of that, for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Well, once again, what a wonderful chapter. Paul, obviously led and carried along by the Spirit of God, has given us these wonderful words. I want to back up just a little bit from where we 
are starting. We're starting in the middle of a sentence on verse 19, but I want to just read uh, verse 18 so that we remember where we were. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So, when we start in verse 19, as we are this evening, whose end is destruction, we're talking about those who are enemies of Messiah, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, it's clear from verse 18 that he's talking about those who profess to be followers of Yeshua, or who say that Yeshua is one of many, and that they have the real thing, and he is just uh, some part of it. So, clearly he's talking about those who, in his day, were considered the most religious, the most ardent for following the God of Israel. And yet, in the verse previous, in verse 18, he says that they are enemies of Messiah. So now Paul continues with his description of those who were playing religion, but who have never received the life-changing power of the Spirit, for their quote-unquote religion is for outward show or conformity to an outward religious observance while never having a genuine renewal of heart obtained through the exercise of true saving faith in Yeshua. And I'll be touching on this as we go along, but let's be careful about pointing our fingers at others until we have fully examined ourselves. I believe that there are many, unfortunately, who have been uh, taught that if they came forward at a a service and uh, signed a card that they're saved, and their life doesn't change all that much. In fact, they continue in the ways of the world, but they consider themselves to be Christians. They feel like somehow they have uh, checked the box off and everything is going to be okay if and when Yeshua returns. Well, that's not saving faith. Saving faith changes us in many ways, and by the work of the Spirit, enables us to be true followers of the Messiah so that when we fail and when we sin, we're convicted and we seek to make it right and to seek God's ongoing forgiveness and to learn and to grow so that we live more and more unto the Spirit and not grieving Him. So he says, whose end is destruction. While the goal to which such people hope to attain is God's blessing, Their attempt at gaining God's favor through man-made, quote-unquote, religion has just the opposite reality. The true destination or goal, which is the Greek word telos, we get our word telescope from that, uh, telephone and so forth, uh, that is, we're able to reach the distance with those uh, modern inventions. Uh, The goal to which they are heading is that of destruction, apoleia. While this Greek word could carry the sense of complete destruction or annihilation, Paul uses it to describe total ruin in the sense of receiving the complete opposite of what they think will be gained by their, quote, exterior religious masquerade. Rather than gaining favor with God and eternal life with Him through their religious activities, they will be met with the awful and eternal wrath of the three times holy God expressed in the eternal agony of hell. Calvin puts it this way, He, that is Paul, adds this in order that the Philippians, appalled by the danger, may be so much the more carefully on their guard that they may not involve themselves in the ruin of those persons. As, however, profligates of this description, by means of show and various artifices, frequently dabble the eyes of the simple for a time in such a manner that they are preferred even to the most eminent servants of Christ, the apostle declares with great confidence that the glory with which they are now puffed up will be exchanged for ignominy. I like this phrase that they dazzle the eyes. Isn't it true that false religions often just dazzle the eyes of people and they think, wow, that's unbelievable, that's wonderful, and they follow after it? Well, this is what was happening in Paul's day. The ardent Jewish people who had rejected Yeshua were quite sure that their man-made religion 
their uh, all of their uh, traditions and their ways of doing things and being different than everyone else and so forth was what was really going to make them stand worthy in the court of God. And at the same time, they reject the very Son of God who came to bring redemption. Indeed, the Scriptures make it clear that the future awaiting those who have no saving faith is that of experiencing the eternal wrath of God's infinite holiness. I wanted to bring this up because it could sound as though that uh, when it says that they're headed for full destruction, that it is annihilationism. Now, uh, annihilationists teach that once the unbeliever dies, he cease or she ceases to exist. They're entirely annihilated. Their life is snuffed out. They have no more uh, being whatsoever. And so, in this way, there are those who teach there's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as eternal uh, torment. They say uh, the God of love would never allow that to happen. Well, what do the scriptures say? I think this is an important point. Because more and more, we're hearing those who are teaching this as a way of saying that the God that we worship is the God of love, not the God of punishment, and so forth and so on. Or even uh, universalism, that the death of Yeshua paid for the sins of all people, and therefore, inevitably, all people will spend eternity together in the glories of heaven. And there's no such thing as suffering a place of torment and punishment. Well, I say, indeed, the scriptures make it clear that the future awaiting those who have no saving faith is that of experiencing the eternal wrath of God's infinite holiness. You see, when people say God would never punish someone eternally, they seem to be overlooking the fact that God's holiness is infinite. When His holiness is uh, set aside by people, what is the punishment? It has to be equal to the crime. It is to set aside the eternal name of God and will be punished with eternity. We read, for instance, in Daniel 12:2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting abhorrence. In Matthew 25:46, we read, These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so if you are not worshiping God, what is the outcome? John 5.29 says, And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, we've all committed evil deeds, but what does that mean? Those who committed the evil deeds and did not seek God's forgiveness through the work of Yeshua. And 1 Thessalonians 5.3 While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And then 2 Thessalonians 1.9-10 These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Now, Taking all of those verses together, and there are many more, the scriptures are clear that the infinite holiness of God requires an infinite eternal punishment of those who reject him and those who count on some uh, other way of seeking to please God other than through his son Yeshua. Paul goes on to describe these who have... I think we would say are very good at playing religion. Were the religious Jewish people very, very uh, given to their religion? I'm talking about those who had rejected Yeshua. Yes, they were. They had all kinds of guidelines that they had to follow. Everyone knew who they were because of the way they dressed and because of the things that they did and didn't do and so forth and so on. And they believed that their being part of Israel as Jewish and maintaining their religion even though it was devoid of the very Messiah who came to Israel 
they believed that they were the ones that were in. And yet, Paul characterizes them by three other terms, whose God is their appetite. Now, I'm not saying it was just the Jewish people. What I'm saying is, is that it's anyone who thinks that their doing religion is enough to win God's favor and forgiveness. No. God is fully holy. He's infinitely holy, and the only way that sin, which is an infinite, therefore, transgression against him, could be paid for would be by an infinite sacrifice, and that can only be Yeshua. So he says, whose God is their appetite. Here Paul uses the word appetite as a metonymy, that is, a figure of speech by which an associated attribute is used to identify a specific entity. Some of the ones that I thought of were when we, in English, we say, Wow, did you see that guy eating at dinner? Yeah. He was so hungry, he ate three plates worth. Now, when we say he ate three plates, we don't mean he actually ate the plate. The word plate stands for that which is on the plate. Or we often hear, in the United States at least, we hear something like, uh, The White House will make a special statement tomorrow. Well, does the White House speak? <laughs> White House is a metonymy for the president and those who assist him and so forth. So it's a figure of speech by which an associated attribute is used to identify a specific entity. So what does it mean, whose God is their appetite? The Greek word translated appetite, kolia, which carries the meaning belly or stomach, but was also used to describe the Quote, seat of inward life or feelings and desires. Whereas in our modern Western thought, we often think of the heart as the place from which our feelings and desires come forth. In the ancient Semitic culture, one's feelings and desires proceed from the lower extremities. This is why the scriptures can speak of having, as the old King James Version had it, bowels of compassion. There was the idea that the midriff of the human uh, person was the very place where the feelings came forth because obviously when you were very scared of something if you were uh, if you came into something that really scared you your stomach might seize up or if you're worrying you might have an upset stomach and so forth so you could see why they would do that uh, and so that's why he says whose God is their appetite he uses this uh, same metonymy in Romans now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. In other words, they're very taken with themselves. It's like they're constantly hungry, not in a physical way, but in an attempt to have people think highly of them or to do things that others will say, wow, he's really a religious person or she's really given to uh, a religious way. That's what Paul means when he says their God is their appetite. Whatever makes them feel good, whatever makes them feel as though that they're close to God, whatever that might be, that's what they follow and that's what they long for and that's what they depend upon. Thus, Paul is simply stating in his epistle to the Philippians that those who are simply playing religion rather than repenting of their sin and accepting God's saving grace by faith in his Messiah Yeshua are actually motivated by what pleases them and fulfills their own selfish desires. They seek to fulfill their own desires as though this is the very essence of serving God, for they believe religion's primary good is to give them what they desire. Now, I wouldn't say this, obviously, of any across-the-board situation, but it seems to me that there are times when the more radical charismatic movement verges on this. I can't, I'm not pointing my finger at anyone specifically, but it seems like they're, they're, they come to the meeting of their church to see some miracle happen, to see something really motivate them um, in terms of their feelings. Well, there's nothing wrong with having our feelings motivated by that which is true and right. But that isn't the essence of what it means 
to have one's life given over to the Lord in faith. Once again, the so-called prosperity gospel in our day is one of the modern versions of what Paul is here describing. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, the prosperity gospel. I presume that you are. But there are those who say that if you come to faith, if you believe in Jesus, and if you accept him as your Savior, then everything's going to fall into place. Your job is going to be, uh, you're going to make more money. If you own a business, it's going to be very uh, lucrative and successful. Uh, Everything's going to fall into place. You're going to have just prosperity upon prosperity. Well, we know that's not true. It wasn't true for Paul. He suffered for the Lord. And he was willing to do that because he knew that Yeshua was indeed his Savior and that he had been born afresh by faith in him and he was willing even to give his life if that was required. The second thing he says, and whose glory is in their shame. Here once again it appears that Paul is using the word glory, doxa, as the opposite of what glory really is. That is, he is contrasting the unbelieving religious person with the true spiritual fruit of one whose life is being transformed by the indwelling Spirit, having been born again through saving faith in Yeshua. In contrast to the glory of God, which rests upon the true believer in Yeshua, according to verse 21 in our chapter, the self-centered glory of man-made religion will ultimately result in utter shame when Yeshua proclaims, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And of course, here once again, as I've mentioned several times in the past, in this study and in other studies, to know somebody in the Hebrew perspective is to have covenant with them. This is why the word is used between a husband and a wife, of the close relationship that they have. Even a close physical relationship. It's a covenant of marriage that allows them to be one. When Yeshua proclaims, I never knew you, How is that possible to mean he didn't know about them? Of course not. He's all-knowing. But it means, I never had covenant relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And what is the point that he's making? That those who are just playing religion are indeed practicing lawlessness. They have set themselves against the very thing that God loves and given themselves to the very things that God hates. And he thirdly then says, who set their minds on earthly things. Once again, Paul uses the verb phroneo, as he does in 3.15, which describes not merely the act of thinking, but rather that which is one's attitude or ultimate desire, and thus that to which one gives their primary focus. What is the primary desire of the one who is an unbeliever? It is to have everything go right for him or her. It is to be successful in whatever way they define being successful. What should be the primary goal in our lives as followers of Yeshua? To please Him. To give Him the glory. To have others see in us what He has done for us that it might draw them to Him. Moreover, Paul uses the same word to describe the mind of Messiah in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, that is, the very model of Yeshua who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, in order to fulfill the will of his Father to make atonement for all whom he would redeem unto eternal life with him. So, as the hymn writer put it, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. What is the point of that line from the hymn? It is that I want Messiah Yeshua. I want God and His Spirit to receive the glory for anything and everything that I am successful at. It's not for me, ultimately. It's for the glory of God. This is why the Reformers in the uh, five solas uh, that they uh, developed, sola gloria, everything ought to be for the glory of God. This description of the religious unbeliever should encourage each one of us to examine our own desire and efforts to live our lives to the glory of God and to seek His purpose for oneself as the primary and overarching desire and goal in all aspects of our lives. 
If we have that in our heart and mind, then we will be far further down the road of doing what pleases God and living out the life of, of saving faith which he has given to us and the joy of knowing that one day we will be with him. Now that's where Paul takes us. He takes us now to the the very important aspect of our faith that we await the coming of our Messiah Yeshua. Will he come in our lifetimes? We don't know that for sure. But we know he will come. And those who have passed before his coming will be resurrected and will meet him there in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord, as Paul teaches us. So verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Messiah. Now, this phrase, our citizenship is in heaven, the Greek word that stands beside the translation citizenship is the noun uh, polituma, which basically we get our word politics and so forth from that uh, root, which has as its base meaning commonwealth and is found only here in the apostolic scriptures. It is cognate to the verb polituomai, to be a citizen, and so forth. So in other words, to be part of, in the ancient world, to be part of a commonwealth. That means we have have things in common within a given country. There are laws that we have. There are uh, things that we are enabled to do because we're citizens of that particular country. And that's what the text means, citizens. For our citizenship is in heaven. Have you considered that? I'm sure you're all aware of that phrase. What does it mean our citizenship is in heaven? It means this world is really not our final home. Granted, we're here by God's grace and by his sovereign will, and we're to do all that we can do to give him glory here upon this earth, but eternity is not on this earth. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. So, Paul uses this same a term in 127, this one for to be a citizen, where he writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To conduct yourself means to live within the context of the very citizenship which we own. As noted in the commentary on that verse, the phrase conduct yourself could more specifically be understood to mean to act as a citizen. Philippi, a colony of Rome, was in Macedonia, and was therefore removed geographically from the borders of Rome itself, yet had been awarded the status of Isu Italicum, that is, Italian law, or Roman law, which was the highest legal privilege obtainable by any provincial municipality. As a Roman citizen, you had the right to seek justice. You had the right to seek help by the government to help you if there was uh, something that was done illegally against you. Therefore, the citizens of Philippi were equally citizens of Rome with the same rights and privileges of any Roman born in the imperial city. So it's a perfect example, as Paul writes to Philippi. Even though that they were a colony, they had the same rights as a native-born Roman in the Roman Empire. Using this metaphor to describe the status of believers in Yeshua, Paul is reminding his leaders and us that our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we're citizens of heaven, far more than we are citizens of the United States or somewhere in England or you know, Australia or Queensland or wherever. We're citizens of heaven. We have been given both an eternal and grand privilege as well as a responsibility to honor and reflect the king of whose country we are citizens. Surely such citizenship grants us tremendous privileges and blessings. But it also requires us to live as true citizens who not only are grateful for such a status, but also seek to honor the king by whose power our citizenship has been granted. It is something to be a citizen of a country that really uh, cares for its citizens. I mean, I've been in, in countries, and I presume that some of you have too, where there is no real uh, value of being a citizen there. Everything is run by the very, very wealthy and by those who are in control, and all the rest have to make it on their own. That's not the way 
things are run in this citizenship in heaven. God has already demonstrated his eternal and infinite love for us by sending his Son, by bringing us to himself, by giving us the promise of eternal life. By emphasizing the fact that we who are in Messiah are citizens of heaven, Paul is not diminishing the reality that we are also citizens of the earthly realm in which we reside. It doesn't mean that, well, I don't care, you know, I don't have to do anything with this world. I'm so heavenly minded that I have no earthly good. In other words, it doesn't mean that we despise where we live and uh, fail to be good citizens of the land in which we live here. But what it means is that our ultimate responsibility and our ultimate goal is to show that we are citizens of heaven. And we do that by emulating and seeking to bring into our own lives the very life and the way and the thought of Yeshua by His Spirit. To live according to His way is to give Him the glory He deserves. So, Paul is not diminishing that we are also citizens of the earthly realm in which we reside. So, to the extent that human governments do not require of their citizens that which is contrary to God's commandments, believers in Yeshua ought to live in obedience to the laws their government establishes, as long as it's not contrary to what God has required. Yet the primary point of Paul's words here is that since we are ultimately and finally citizens of heaven, we are to live in such a way as to obey and honor the Lord who is the sovereign king of our heavenly abode. One commentator, Gordon Fee, puts it this way, Paul is not here renouncing their common citizenship in the earthly commonwealth of Rome. On the contrary, that citizenship is what will make the present sentence ring the changes for the Philippians. Citizens of the Roman commonwealth they may well be, and proudly so. But the greater reality is that they are subjects of the heavenly Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and therefore their true commonwealth exists in heaven. Their true citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And if that's a reality in our lives, then it will make us good citizens even in our earthly countries and places where we live. Paul goes on to say, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Messiah. As I was studying this and writing and so forth, I thought to myself, how am I doing about this? How eagerly do I await the coming of my Savior, Yeshua? Well, it's easy, isn't it? In our workaday world and our very hectic schedules and so forth, to fail to meditate uh, on this very truth that we are to be eagerly looking for and awaiting the coming of our Savior. Recently, I've had in my mind uh, over and over again the phrase, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I think that's so uh, wonderful. Regardless of what the situation we're in, we can rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because He is the one who is in control of all things. And He will never forsake us or leave us. And as we come to Him for help and for strength, He promises to give it as we submit ourselves to Him. So, it is in the heart of every true believer that they continue to anticipate, wait and long for, and have increased joy regarding the promised coming of Yeshua. Even as we daily strive to have our faith strengthened to serve Him, to rely upon Him, to honor Him, and to be living witnesses of His grace, so we who belong to Him must constantly be living in anticipation of His coming when we will see Him just as He is. Now, I don't think any of us would deny the fact that there are times when we wonder, it's been so long. It's been millennia since the promise has been given. But with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. He exists out of time. His schedule is perfect, and He will come when 
he is ready and when it is a plan and appointed for him to come. Paul's language here emphasizes the already but not yet aspect of our salvation and our faith in Yeshua. We experience the already now, for by his grace and the indwelling Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to grow in becoming more and more like our Savior, to experience his presence with us as we grow in our practical understanding of who he is and what he has done for us. Yet there is a not-yet aspect to our faith as well, and our walking in this world, as those who have full assurance that he is coming as he promised. For though by faith we know his coming is sure, and that one day we will see him face to face, we still long for that day to come and for eternity to be ushered in. We can see now, here in verse 21, the motivation for the imperatives Paul has given us in verse 17 and the declaration in verse 18. So he's he's bringing up the things that he's given us just in the previous context. He says, join together in following my example, that is Paul's example. And what is that? Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, see in each other as believers the uh, encouragement to be what God wants us to be. And what are the reasons? Well, because many walk as enemies of the cross. Right? They may be very religious in their own way of uh, defining religion. But there are many who are think they're very religious who have no part in Yeshua because they have not submitted themselves and sought to have the faith that he gives to receive him as Savior and to be enabled to walk in the Spirit and to grow more and more to be like him. And that then brings us to our citizenship is in heaven. There are commands. Join together. Keep your eyes on those who live according to God's ways. And what are the reasons? Because there are many enemies of the cross and because our citizenship is in heaven. Surely, the motivation Paul gives us in this verse is that we are to continue becoming more and more who we truly are in Yeshua. That's the already not yet. Am I already a child of God? Yes. Have I already been indwelt by the Spirit of God? Yes. Have there already been changes in my life? Yes. Do there need to be more? Yes. So we're becoming more and more like who we truly will be in Yeshua. And we do this through obedience to God's word as we aid one another through the example of our own obedience to God in all aspects of our lives. This was one of the wonderful things of the Reformation. Before the Reformation, what had come into the church was this idea that there is a sacred realm of your life and a secular realm. What you do in the sacred realm is you go to church and you pray and you give your money and so forth and so on. What you do in your secular life, secular life is not something that really matters with regard to your sacred life. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Do all things unto the Lord. So whether we eat or sleep or whatever we do, we are to do it unto the Lord. What does that mean? That means that our our hobbies, that means that our uh, the things that we'd like to do just for the fun of it. Even that can be done unto the Lord as long as it's done for him and doesn't uh, go contrary to what he has revealed to us in terms of his desires and his commands. And we need to look at all of life, all aspects of our life. Somebody might say, oh, you mean I, I can clean my house uh, as unto the Lord? Yes. Yes, you can. You can do that as unto the Lord because it is enabling family to live in a way that is better. You're serving each other. When we go to our job, you say, well, I change oil for a job. Well, you can do that as unto the Lord. You can do it well. You can do it right. You can do it with honesty and integrity. All of that is unto the Lord. There's no sacred uh, realm as over against a secular realm in God's way of looking at things. All of our life 
is to have that motivation to please Him. So we are to help one another, we're to serve one another and encourage each other to live with the anticipation of Yeshua's return. We can't do that if we're not speaking with each other, talking with each other, and the best way would be to be with each other in our local communities. And I know the current events in our world and uh, even the way things go with all of our uh, modern uh, computers and so forth, it seems as though that there is a continuing move amongst some to, there's no need to take the time to go and be with people. We can just, you know, kind of exchange emails and that kind of thing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And granted, in some cases, that's all that's available. Okay. But where we have the opportunity to meet together, to be with each other, to encourage one another face to face, that ought to be something we do whenever possible and as often as we meet together. Paul states that our anticipation of Yeshua's return ought to flow out of an eager expectation. The Greek word for wait eagerly is this long uh, Greek term, apekdexomai, and it's used five other times in Paul's epistles. So I've given you these. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The very way that it's put together, the anxious longing, means there's something that needs to change. We can use just a common uh, illustration. If you're very hungry, what are you longing for? Something to eat. Our spirits hungry for a closer understanding, companionship with God? Then that's what it means to wait eagerly for His coming. The same word is used in Romans 8.23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What is that waiting eagerly in, in Romans 8.23? It's the return of our Messiah, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.25 But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We just are anticipating it. And that's to be constantly part of our uh, spiritual life. To be waiting and looking for and hoping for and anticipating the return of Yeshua. 1 Corinthians 1.7 So that you are not lacking in any gift, waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. And then Galatians 5.5 5, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now it's the same word here. Um, the NASB didn't put eagerly but uh, it is the same word. The hope of righteousness. It is often the case for many who are believers in Yeshua that when life is going along well without too many difficulties or concerns the return of Yeshua receives less emphasis and anticipation. Given this general trend, it seems likely that God allows difficult times to come upon his people so that they reassess their desire for Yeshua's return and long for it all the more. But the scripture's emphasis upon the return of Yeshua ought all the more to cause us to make this wonderful truth a regular subject of our thoughts and meditations and thereby to have a growing anticipation for his return. As John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's First John 3, verses 2 through 3. And we come now to the final verse of our chapter, verse 21. Who, speaking of God, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So having emphasized the eager expectation for the return of Yeshua in accordance with the promise of his return, Paul now reminds the Philippian believers and us of the transformation that will take place for all who are his. 
This transformation will change the body of our humble state, which translates the Greek phrase, and I've given it to you there, the body of our, uh, the, the humbleness of our, our state or our being. The key word is tapenosis, translated by the NESB as humble state. But what is it by which our body, the very creative work of God himself, is labeled by Paul as in a humble state? Didn't God create us in his image? Wouldn't that therefore be a wonderful thing? How is it in a humble state? The Greek word, tapenosis, can also be understood to mean a state of humility. So what is it that has caused the creation of God himself, as he fashioned the human bodies of Adam and Chava, to become humiliated or in a state of humility? It is no doubt the sin that entered the world, and that sin of Adam has passed on to all mankind, as Paul himself states in his epistle to the Romans. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, or I think this final phrase could be understood as, and the proof is that all sinned. That death came from sin, and we all die at some point. Unless, of course, we live to see his return. It is therefore the very reality of death that is passed on to all mankind as a result of Adam's sin that is overcome in an eternal way for all who are in Messiah Yeshua. Some may argue that even those who spend eternity in hell have not died. In a physical sense, that is true. However, the biblical definition of death also may encompass spiritual death, that is, eternal separation from God, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, when Yeshua described the plight of the unbelievers on the Day of Judgment. He writes, Many will say to me, that's Yeshua speaking, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, that's just a tough verse, isn't it? We prophesied in your name? We cast out demons? In your name performed many miracles? Don't you think the enemy is very sly? If a demon takes hold of someone and causing them to have all kinds of problems, and then somebody in their own power, not in the power of God, but in their own power, command it to leave, and then the demon leaves, what does everybody think about that person? That person has special power. That person is somebody that is right. Now he can teach whatever he wants and people are going to believe it. Apparently that's what's going on here. Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? Can demons bring about that which appears to be a miracle? I think they can. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I had no covenant relationship with you and then depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, the transformation for all who are true believers in Yeshua, which Paul is teaching us here, is when mortal is transformed to be immortal, that is, when sin and death are taken away, and those who belong to Yeshua will live forever with him, never again to struggle with the sinful nature, nor to face death. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Those quotes are from Isaiah 25.8 and Hosea 13.14. He goes on to say, In conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, we are going to be transformed, our sinful body, our sinful nature, our finite body. We're going to be given eternity. And we're not going to be just ethereal spirits. We're going to have bodies. Yeshua, the eternal Son of God, could never have been overcome by death since he is eternally holy without sin. His death upon the cross was allowed because he, as the incarnate one, submitted to death for the sake of all he would save by paying their penalty they owed for their sin and rebellion against God. He said, No one takes my life. I give it up. 
He proved his power over death by his resurrection on the third day following his execution. Thus, the transformation of the human body of all believers at the time of Yeshua's coming will not be simply a superficial or outward change of form, but a complete change of inward nature and quality. We will be like him, for we will see him just as he is. And so we remember John said in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. In other words, his looking upon us, and we upon him, will be the transforming action. He says, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is talking about Yeshua. Those who seem to deny, or actually do deny, the deity of Yeshua have not read the Bible. Over and over and over again, the scriptures affirm that Yeshua is one with the Father and one with the Spirit, and that he always has been. He has no beginning and he has no end. So what does he mean by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself? Yeshua the Creator of the world, together with the Father and the Spirit, has all power in heaven and earth to bring about God's ordained will. Nothing can stand against Him. All things that exist in this universe are subject to His power and purposes, and thus it is by His omnipotent power and majesty that all those for whom He has died, and whom God has brought into His family by His grace through faith, will be transformed to live forever and the beauty and glory of God, and thus forever to extol His infinite power, love, and glory. So, at the end of this chapter, we see once again a clear statement of the Scriptures that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are infinitely one. I hope this has been encouraging to you. It has been to me as we are reminded once again by God's Word to anticipate the coming of Yeshua to know that he has all things in control and to live more and more unto his glory because of what he has done for us and he deserves all praise and all glory okay that's uh, where we'll end for tonight so thank you so much for coming and look forward to being with you next week Lord willing as we continue on in our study of this grand epistle to the Philippians <laughs> 